Well, we are, um, those of you who have been with us, we are in week 10 of a 15-week series on the book of Revelation. And um, I know some of you are just joining us, so I'll try to give you some handholds as we've been going through this really amazing vision that God uh, gives to us about his reign. You know, um, just last Sunday, I was returning from our middle school and high school camp with many of these guys. You saw our picture on the screen. Here's another one. And I had the joy of just sharing the great and shining, glorious passages of the gospel with our students. And it was such uh, soul food for me. And today, just a week later, I find myself preaching what one theologian called one of the most awful passages of Scripture in every sense of the word. Terrifying, terrible, offensive, and at the same time, a wonder to behold. And at certain moments this week in my preparation, I felt like I've had spiritual whiplash in a way to go from, for God so loved the world to God's judgment of the world, essentially. And in the tension of all of that this week as we've come back from the lake and as I've been preparing this message, I remembered something that happened as the students were getting on the bus before we drove all night down to Lake Powell. And Ash McDonald, who would have a baby five days later, held all the leaders back and she prayed a prayer over us. And she prayed that in all things, whether we were jumping off cliffs into the lake or sharing meals, or gathering around God's word, that every single thing about our adventure would be to the end that life and death would be set before our students. Life with Christ, death without him. And that they would choose life. That was her prayer, that life and death would be set before our students, and that they would choose life, and that they would know that life is found in Jesus Christ. And I was so grateful for that prayer because it really gave me a call for the week, that that is what we were going to be about. And here's what's been so amazing this week as um, things have gone on. I've realized that in today's very challenging text that Jesus is actually doing the exact same thing. He's confronting us with a choice. He's asking us, will you choose death or life? Will you choose the way of the prostitute or the way of the bride, the beast or the lamb? Will you be a resident of the great city or a resident of the holy city? Will you work for the empire or for the kingdom? Will you give your life ultimately for the poisoning of the nations or for the healing of the nations? We all choose. And really, our lives are meant to continually demonstrate that choice that we have made. So today, Revelation is going to press not only on our beliefs about life in Christ and death apart from him, but it presses on the way that we live out that allegiance, that we live out that worship and our habits and our systems in regard to the ways of life and death. So let me just say from the beginning, this is a really difficult passage. And it just comes in like rapid fire of difficulty. And um, it's also really long. I've been so grateful for the work of Daryl Johnson and Tim Keller and Bruce Metzger, who are pastors and theologians. And their work has been 
very significant for me, so I hope as I pass it on to you, it will be helpful. But we are covering almost four chapters, and I don't know how I got the short end of that stick, but um, we are going 15, 16, 17, and 18. It's just the way the themes laid out in our 15 weeks. So we have so much to cover that this is what I want you to imagine that we're doing. I want us to imagine that we are riding in one of those sky ride tours, and we're just going to make our way over these four chapters, and I'm going to be pointing out and highlighting certain sections to help us see, like those, yes, just like those skyride things. Because I've noticed in some places that it's almost like John is watching the drama of the revelation, like from afar, and even unfolding from above, he's just watching. It says in today's text that he's carried away in the spirit into the wilderness to see the next part of the vision. So you might imagine that you are with John, seeing it for the first time from your skyride box as we watch um, all of these things unfold. So let's pray, and we will dive in. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Oh God, you are worthy to receive our glory and honor and power as we have just sung. For you created all things. So we ask our King, our Lord, that by your grace you would, by your Spirit, teach us of yourself, your kingdom, and your will for us. In the name of Jesus we ask it. Amen. Okay, so strap in because it's just going to get real. So you might remember um, that the Apostle John has been banished to a prison island because he would not worship the Roman Caesar. So he was ironically considered an atheist because he wouldn't worship the Caesar, uh, even though he bowed his knee to Jesus and he professed that. So he was sent to prison. And while he was on this prison island, Jesus revealed this dramatic vision to John to show him and also so that he would show fellow Christians who were suffering at the time. And I believe also that he revealed it to John for us, for the church of all time. And this is ultimately what this revelation, what this vision shows us that Jesus is sovereign over all of life in history, and that he is working all things together for good, even if we can't always see it from our vantage point. Jesus is sovereign. He's reigning now. He will reign forever. And as a reminder, even though the revelation is political and spiritual and prophetic and historic all at the same time, it is not a chronological timeline. So we're not uh, seeing a newspaper of current events unfold. So as we come upon chapters 15 and 16, John is shown seven angels with seven bowls, and the bowls have seven plagues in them. And the bowls are really depicting the very similar realities as the seven seals and the seven trumpets, as we saw in chapters 6, 7, 8, and 9. And really, again, we're just seeing the same thing from a different vantage point, this time from the court of heaven, as the angels really enact God's ultimate and final merciful justice on the earth. So these seven plagues really are the final judgment of those who have chosen to violate God's kingdom, who have chosen to oppress God's people, and really to entice people away from the worship of God. So what we know is that at this time in history, when John received this vision, that Christians were undergoing intense persecution under Roman rule. John was one of the lucky ones to be sent away to prison. So around the time of the Revelation, here is what one Roman non-Christian historian wrote. A vast multitude of Christians were not only put to death, 
but put to death with insult. They were either clothed in the skins of wild beasts and then exposed in the arena to the attacks of half-famished dogs, or else dipped their entire bodies, dipped in tar, and put on crosses to be set on fire, and when the daylight failed, to be burned as lights by night down the main street of Rome. So the persecution of Christians at this time was so terrible that what we learn from history is that even non-Christian Roman citizens were starting to uh, speak up and to protect them. And it's, the mid- it's in the midst of this kind of fear and persecution and suffering that this description that we're about to read about the justice and mercy is given to God's people through John. And it's a promise to them that their suffering is not in vain, that God does indeed see them. So it says in Revelation 16, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go, pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. A few things I found especially interesting about the seven bowls and the seven plagues. One is that this, even the shape of these bowls is symbolic, that they, um, the bowls were broad and shallow like a saucer, and they're meant to depict that the contents of judgment will be poured out completely and suddenly. There will be no more uh, time for repentance in this final stage of judgment. They will come fast. And interestingly, those seven plagues that are in those seven bowls are very similar to the plagues that came before Israelites' exodus from Egypt. You might remember that the Pharaoh oppressed God's people. He kept them as slaves and wouldn't allow them to worship in freedom or allow them to go. And so these plagues of the final judgment, if you can imagine, are even worse than the ten plagues that we see in the exodus. They're absolutely awful. And yet, especially for those whose loved ones had been burned at the stake, who were fearing for their own lives because of their allegiance to Jesus Christ, we can understand that these judgments are merciful and just acts of God. It says this in Revelation 16:5. Then I heard an angel in charge of the waters. The waters all turned to blood and everything in the waters died. You are just in these judgments, O Holy One, you who are and who were, For they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. This is really a hard word of judgment. And verse 9 tells us that even with this display of the power of God through these judgments, the people refused to repent. They refused to acknowledge God. They continued in their evil. But what we also see as Revelation has declared is that those who did trust in God, even in the midst of this persecution, what we've seen in Revelation is that they are marked with the blood of the lamb, with the slain lamb. And just like Israel's great exodus from Egypt, those who had the blood of the lamb, you might remember, on their doorposts, they were protected from that final judgment. The angel of death passed over the homes that were marked with the blood of the slain lamb. And that night, the Lord led them out of Egypt and out of slavery into freedom. And so here in the Revelation, in this final judgment, it's like with the seals and the trumpets and the exodus, those who belong to the slain lamb, who are covered by his blood, are protected. If we ever think that what God was doing in the Old Testament is not connected to what God was doing in the New Testament, Revelation has given us over 
hundred examples otherwise, and it's amazing that God has always been seeking to bring his people out of slavery and into freedom, to bring them into life. But then, seemingly without warning, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice, and it just said, it is done, and the judgment upon the earth ends. Just as quickly as it begins, they just come in rapid fire. I would encourage you to read it sometime this week. And this is where I just want to hit like emergency break in the tour because it's so overwhelming. The rapid fire pace and the intensity of the bowls being poured out is overwhelming. So again, just turn to your neighbor, give them a fist bump, okay? Shake your shoulders a little bit, okay? Because it's going to get even more intense. And what's so interesting, in these four chapters, there is no reprieve like we've seen in other places of Revelation, where there has been a breath where we lift our heads and remember the sovereignty and the kindness of God. We just keep going in all of this. And it's as if we were taken even closer to the middle of the destruction. Like if we're on this sky ride tour, all of a sudden it turns and goes down right into the heart of where we are going to see the destruction, into Babylon, the great city, which is also called the great prostitute. And these are all the words Babylon, the word great city, the word prostitute are just very thinly veiled code words for Rome. But they also are words that relate to us today, part of a larger reality, which we'll see in just a minute. So what we know is that Rome was built on seven hills in seven cities, all near the Mediterranean, was this Roman Empire. And we're going to hear reference to seven heads and many many waters. This is John's kind of code word of talking, saying, I'm talking about Rome, let it be known. And the Roman Empire is depicted as an adulterous prostitute, which we are to understand metaphorically to mean that Rome has misused her power. She has misused her wealth to pervert all of the people under her power to force them to live really under her seductive and oppressive rule. So Babylon has become a term in scripture, but also just in culture, for a city who built its foundation apart from God. And it goes all the way back to Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, where the people wanted to make a name for themselves. And so they built up a city, a a structure up to the heavens, they said, that they would build a name for themselves. And in scripture, we see not only the original Babylon, but Nineveh and Assyria and Persia and Tyre and Greece are all called Babylon, especially as it comes to uh, the prediction of their fall. So what Jesus is saying, what he is showing John, is that Rome has become the Babylon of her day, like other cities before it and we are going to see it fall. So Revelation 17 begins like this. One of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and said to me, come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by the many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand, filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, 
the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. So this is a vision about the fall of Rome. But at the time that John received it from Jesus, Rome, this new Babylon, was at the height of its power. And there was no threat anywhere, military or otherwise, on the horizon. No signs of vulnerability when John saw this vision. And it's as if Jesus knows that those who were living for him in this great city that they called the eternal city would need confidence to continue to be faithful as his bride and not be wooed by the seductions of the prostitute, by the lure of the culture. Because if you were to ignore or maybe even miss some of the corruption of Rome, it was easy to see how Rome could be called the great city, the greatest city, the eternal city, all these things that the people of Rome called it. It was a place of incredible natural beauty. It had world-class scholarship. The best and brightest scholars came to Rome to do their work. It had incredible wealth. All the discoveries of medicine of that time were coming out of Rome. It had stunning gardens, the best food, the best wine, the best entertainment, the best music. By all appearances, Rome was the great city. It was thriving and alive, and it seemed that nothing could or would ever challenge it. But Jesus gave John this revelation to share with his people, to help them to know that the corruption that Babylon was built on would catch up with it. That a society that seeks to create itself by itself and for itself in opposition to the ways of God cannot and will not endure. And so Jesus is calling his people to a courageous faithfulness in the midst of their awful suffering and promising that there will be justice and mercy and a city that will go on for all eternity. So three times in chapter 18, Jesus showed John that Babylon would collapse and would collapse quickly. I just pulled out one, but it goes over and over again, kind of in rapid fire again. It says this, Woe, woe to you, great city, you mighty city of Babylon. In one hour, your doom has come. Three times in chapter 18, there's a verse very similar to that. And it didn't happen right away, but the prophetic vision was fulfilled, and in 410, in one week in August, after centuries of power, Rome was invaded by Alaric and the Goths, and this eternal and everlasting empire of Rome fell in one week, completely overturned. For all of its greatness on the surface, underneath and permeating throughout the Roman Empire was this foundation that had been set up apart and in opposition to God, selfishly really opposed to the creator and what God's good intentions are for culture and community and for all people. So in chapter 17 and 18, what's happening is that Jesus is really calling out the marks of Babel, of Babylonness, if you will, and the natural consequences that come when people set up an empire that seek to build a name for themselves apart from the merciful and just reign of God. And I think the list is revealing not only of Rome, but also of all culture. Revelation 18 says this as the first mark of Babylonness of a city. In her heart she boasts, I sit enthroned as queen. This is the heart of any Babylon. Autonomy, literally self-law, self-reign, 
In other words, no one can speak and have authority over me, as if to say, I am my own God, and I will use my talents and my creativities, anything I have to make a name for myself and for my glory. So one of the marks of Babylonness is autonomy. But also throughout chapter 18, we read about injustice. If self-rule and autonomy is the center of a society, if a society is built on self-law and self-promotion, you will always have injustice because the self will always exploit the other to get what the self wants. So we hear of rampant injustice. We hear of extravagant luxury. We hear of sensuality that also exploited people that the rich on the backs of the poor enjoyed luxuries and sensuality and extravagance on the backs of others. We see also an excessive wealth that's stored up as if it could uh, provide security for the future, that people were putting their trust and building up wealth on earth. We see violence, this obvious uh, one, we see violence especially of God's people, but violence even as a form of entertainment violence as a form of security. And then we see deception. The beast actually intentionally mimics the lamb. The beast come and mimics Jesus telling lies and partial truths to capture people's minds, to woo them into thinking that it's all kind of the same thing. And then finally, after this long list of commodities of gold and spices and all these things, slavery. Perhaps one of the most significant indicators of the eventual downfall of Rome was that even at this early time of the revelation in the first century, more than 30% of its population was already slaves. There was this constant and growing stream of people who were brought from all the provinces into these seven cities uh, for the wealthy to entertain them, to um, do their work, And as we saw, fighting in the arenas that the Caesars had set up. So there was this violence and slavery that was for the entertainment of the people. So these were the marks of Babylon, Babylonness in Rome, and of a culture built apart and against God autonomy, injustice, excessive luxury, wealth, sensuality, violence, deception, and slavery. And here is what comes next in that vision. John says, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. The great city could not even endure itself. What it had built itself on was actually feeding its own destruction. And then immediately following this declaration of the fall of Babylon, John heard another voice from heaven say this, Come out of her, my people so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her her plagues. And this is the place where I really want to just hit pause on this kind of overview, this tour of these four chapters. 
Because I believe that this is Jesus' directive to us. I believe this applies to us today. Come out of Babylon, my people. This isn't a call to physically leave Babylon. They couldn't really. It was everywhere. It's a call to come out of Babylon-ness, to come out of the values of Babylon. And on the surface, as I was first looking at this, it sounded uh, in some ways counter to what the Jews were told in Jeremiah 29 when they were exiled to Babylon, to Assyria. And they were told to seek the peace and prosperity of the city. But actually, this word to come out of Babylon-ness I believe is actually how God's people can pursue the peace and the prosperity of our cities. To come out of Babylonness is actually the way that we will bless the people around us. It's the call to live in the great city with the values of the holy city. To be devoted to the lamb even when we live in the shadow of the beast. To be the bride of Christ even when the prostitute beckons us. So we know that Jesus revealed this fall of Babylon hundreds of years in advance to stimulate faithfulness on part of the generations of Christians who were and who would be persecuted by Rome. But he also wrote to awaken generations of Christians who are duped into really seeking compromise with the culture. Those of us who are lured by luxury and wealth and sensuality, and the deception that Babylon presents to us in all forms. And this is where I believe that there is something really important for us to pay attention to. I will also say, this is also where I want to um, jump off the ride. This is a picture of me. Just kidding. It's not a picture of me. You can tell somebody's jumping off of the sky ride. That's about how I felt when I got to this part of my work on this passage. I just wanted to jump ship and not keep going. So I would rather in some ways break my legs from a fall than deal with some of these things. But I think that means that we need to pay attention. So here on top of this historic prophetic word to the Christians at the time, here is what Bruce Metzger says to us. Revelation has a warning for believers down through the years. John's indictment of Rome remains a warning to any nation that elevates material abundance military prowess, technological sophistication, imperial grandeur, racial pride, and any other form of idolatry, the glorification of the creature over the creator. It continues to admonish any human domination system that rejects, that resists God's desires and vision for human community, bound together by reverence for God and commitment to God's ideals for our treatment of one another and to call God's people to come out and stand apart from all practices that perpetuate such resistance. The challenge of Revelation is not to identify what country of the world power is this Babylon of prophecy. Rather, it is to discern what is Babylonish in our own country and to learn how to disentangle ourselves from every practice that interferes with or stands opposed to the achievement of God's good desires for all people. Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. Resist Babylonness wherever you find it, in yourself, in your home, in your business, in your city, in your country, in your world. Come out of the Babylonness of autonomy. 
You are not on the throne. Your life is not your own, and it's not only for you. You were created with amazing purpose, just like we just celebrated for little Birdie. Her life is given by God that she might know him and serve him. Come out of your Babylonness of autonomy and self-reign. Come out of the Babylonness of injustice wherever you find it. If you uncover it, use your power and influence there for mercy and justice instead of injustice. Come out of a life of excessive luxury and the lie that we need stuff and the best stuff and more stuff to be purposeful and happy. Come out of the seductive power of money that says, I will amass everything for my own security and place your wealth before Jesus. Come out of the seductive power of money and ask him to lead you through for his glory, for his kingdom, for his name to be lifted up. Come out of a submission to your own sensuality, the Babylonness that says that your bodies and your minds urges reign supreme. Come out of that Babylonness. Come out of your ways of violence and instead seek the ways of peace. Oops. Resist entertainment that is built on the backs of violence. This has been one in our house that I've been aware of, even with small children. How much of our entertainment, movies, and games actually glorifies violence? Come out of the deception and compromises, the Babylonness that we see about God and his creation. Come out and come out of any kind of slavery or indulgences that are available to you because of slavery. The latest research says there are 40 million slaves in the world today. Whether it be luxury items or food or porn, resist anything that enslaves another person. Come out from the Babylonness in your own heart, in your own life, in your own home, in our culture. So what this means for you, you might already know what it means to come out from the Babylonness that is around you. And I would just submit to you that where there is agitation, where this stirs for you, that's probably the place that you need to pay most attention. And I will just confess to you that as I was doing this work and kind of making this list of the marks of Babylonness, I took one off because I didn't want to deal with that one. And I realized last night, that's the one that I need to deal with. That is where the mark of Babylonness is still in me. Put it back on the list. Autonomy, injustice, excessive luxury, selfish wealth, sensuality, violence, deception, and slavery. Where is God calling you to come out of Babylonness? To choose the way of the lamb and not the beast. To choose the way of life and not the way of death. Even when we make those ultimate decisions, the way that we live in small and big ways demonstrates our allegiance and our worship in the way that we live and work and play and spend time with people. And what's such good news for us is that we don't do this alone, that God has given us his spirit to empower us to be people who live the way of life, who live the way of the holy city and not just the great city. You know, one of my favorite moments from our trip last week with the students was on one of the last nights. 
after campfire and after the talk, uh, everyone would go up on the houseboats and have small group. And I was sitting out on the front uh, of the boat, and one of the high school guys um, just very briefly walked up to my boat, and he said, thank you for that talk tonight. It wrecked me. And my heart just like melted and exploded uh, all at once for so many reasons, but especially because I love that he was open to God wrecking him, that he was open to being disrupted, that he was open to the Lord saying something to him that was going to cause him to have to look at his life and make some different decisions. And he was such an example to me and uh, has been to me this week too of a willingness to be undone by the Lord that we might more fully step into life. So I hope that he will be an example to all of us this week, that we would let the Lord agitate us in some ways, that we might more fully know his love and his life and his good purposes for us. So let me pray for you in that. Oh God, your love is so uh, vast and so good and so kind. And God, even in these hard words of judgment, we see your mercy and your justice. We see your love for all humanity, your desire that um, all who you created would know life and not death. God, we pray that you would use us to that end, that our lives and our life together as a church, as a community, would be about the healing of nations, would be about life for people. So God, continue to call out the Babylonness of us. Continue to call us out of Babylonness that we might more fully, joyfully live as your people in the world. Pray all these things, Jesus, for your glory. Amen.